they seem to be enthralled by the logic of this is covered under academic freedom. And we disagree. We, we disagree strongly. And the word we use is Stanford's been trolled. The very principle of academic freedom and the very principle of free speech is being violated. So it's a hermetically sealed, snowflakey, self-congratulatory event. This weekend, top academics from around the country will descend onto campus for what the business school is calling a, quote, conference on academic freedom. So how come some faculty are claiming that it's an embarrassment to the university? This is The Daily Brew. I'm Grace Carroll. Today, we're looking inside the controversy surrounding this conference and some of the more incendiary speakers who will be taking the stage at the GSB this weekend. The two-day event features a roster of big-name academics who cover a pretty broad spectrum of political positions, including the former president of the ACLU, NYU law professor Nadine Strasser, the famous Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, and the prominent author Jonathan Haidt. But the focal point of the conference is a keynote address by Stanford's very own Peter Thiel. Thiel, you might remember, is a billionaire venture capitalist, Stanford grad, and staunch libertarian. He was an early and vocal supporter of Trump's 2016 campaign and has drawn a lot of controversy from mixing with white nationalists. Recently, he's become something of a kingmaker on the new right, backing the Senate campaigns of J.D. Vance in Ohio and Blake Masters in Arizona, both of whom, it's worth noting, have refused to accept the results of the 2020 election. Over 40 Stanford professors have signed an open letter fervently criticizing the conference, calling it a campaign to, quote, protect racist lies and other mistruths and an offense to the very concept that forms the bedrock of the university. I sat down with David Palumbo-Lu, a professor of comparative literature and a prominent campus activist. He's been one of the major driving forces behind this open letter. So to get us started, I wanted to ask how this open letter came into being. What was your initial reaction to hearing about this conference? Our initial thought was, great, it's a really important topic. It's something that people like Professor Josh Landy and David Spiegel have been pressing the university to do for some time. And so we welcomed the general notion this was going to happen. Although every time that we have introduced the topic, we've said, Freedom needs to be understood in the same breath as academic responsibility. Academic freedom doesn't exist simply to be able to spout out. It exists to be able to reply and to engage in a discussion that's very close to John Stuart Mill's notion of free speech. We looked at the program thinking, oh, they're going to talk about the book banning, but he can't use the word gay in Florida, etc. But when we saw the conference, we saw that, no, those concerns were completely absent as was going to be the audience in the sense that they had closed it. It was by invitation only. And not only had they closed it to the Stanford community and to the public, they had also closed it to the press. When a reporter from the Chronicle of Higher Education reached out to ask about covering the conference, she was told that media would not be welcome in an effort to establish, quote, an open discussion. It's worth noting that organizers have since switched tracks and will now be live streaming the conference, although it's unclear if journalists will be allowed in the room. So a handful of faculty were already feeling nervous about the format of this conference. And then they looked at who was slated to speak. 
One of President Trump's top coronavirus advisors is resigning from his post at the White House. Dr. Scott Atlas was a regular source of coronavirus conspiracy theories during his tumultuous three-month tenure. Still, Mr. Trump has trusted the advice of Atlas, including his criticism of lockdowns and his support of rebelling against Democratic governors. Atlas came under serious fire in the fall of 2020 when he issued a tweet telling people to, quote, rise up against Michigan's COVID mandates. Not long after that, three people were arrested for a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Dr. Atlas is scheduled to host a lunch on the second day of the conference. I spoke with Dr. David Spiegel, the Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. I am deeply disturbed because Atlas undermined uh, people's respect for public health. And he was deeply critical of masking and social distancing and shutting down schools. He was encouraging uncivil disobedience. He was encouraging criminal activity that undermines the government. And we've seen a lot more of it happen since then. And all I can say is that the, his participation in the Trump administration's mishandling of the pandemic is a, a disgrace for Stanford, a disservice to the country. And to give you a perspective on just how bad it was and how wrong he was, the United States had 16% of all COVID fatalities during the pandemic. We are only 4% of the world's population. So we had four times the proportion of deaths for COVID than any other country in the world. We had the most deaths of any country. And it's a disgrace. It is particularly disturbing to hear Alice of all people complain that he's being silenced. He had quite a platform to get his point of view across. He still does. I do, too. And he says outrageous things. He does things that are a lethal disservice to people in the country. But he says that we're silencing him when we use our academic freedom to criticize him. The worst part of it is there was a letter signed by some more than 100 faculty members at the School of Medicine criticizing him at the time for his disinformation about COVID. And he got the president's lawyer to threaten them with a liability lawsuit if they didn't rescind their comment within two days. That's trying to silence opposition. That's what he was trying to do. That's trying to silence people. Are simply stating, you're flat out wrong. Your information is wrong. You're not adequately trained to have comments of the kind you're making. We have a right to say that. He, I'm, not, I'm not putting a, a Band-Aid over his mouth. I'm just telling him he's wrong. What you've done is a terrible disservice to the country, to Stanford, and to our medical discipline. Also taking the stage at the conference this weekend is Stanford historian Neil Ferguson. Here's Professor Palimbo Liu again on Ferguson's tricky history with campus speech. He already was involved in one attempt that Stanford made called Cardinal Conversation. And he was part of the planning commission for that. And then it turned out that he had conspired with a student to suggest doing background checks on people that they read with. I believe that the term he used was opposition research. Opposition, I mean, again, it's so infantile, but in any case. And this was of a, of a Stanford undergraduate. So in terms of punching down, right? Besides Neil Ferguson, we have Amy Wax. Amy Wax is a well-known racist troll. Here's a very inconvenient fact, Lynn. This is Amy Wax on a podcast from earlier this year. I, I don't think I've ever seen a Black student 
graduate in the top quarter of the class and rarely, rarely in the top half. I can think of one or two students who scored in the top half in my required first year course. The dean of Penn Law School very quickly responded to Wax's remarks, calling them not just racist, but also factually incorrect. She is a full professor at Penn Law School. She's supposed to be brilliant, but part of her repertoire is issuing these not only racist statements, but false racist statements. Wax won't be the only academic on the dais who has come under scrutiny for making racist comments. She'll be joined by former Princeton professor Joshua Katz, who drew a lot of heat in the summer of 2020 after publishing an article in which he wrote that a black student activist group was a, quote, terrorist organization. Katz and Wax will be speaking together at an event titled The Cost of Academic Dissent. In 2019, Wax told a conservatism conference in Washington that the United States would be, quote, better off as a country if the immigration system favored immigrants from Western countries due to, quote, cultural compatibility, adding that embracing cultural distance nationalism means, in effect, taking the position that our country will be better off with more whites and fewer non-whites. It's one thing to be a racist. It's another thing to say things under the guise of factuality and then have a conference remove you from being able to be questioned. Mm -hmm. In other words, the very principle of academic freedom and the very principle of free speech is being violated. So it's a hermetically sealed, snowflakey, self-congratulatory event. And they have foreclosed debate, and that's why the whole thing's a sham. It is unworthy of Stanford. It is unworthy of any institution. And because I do literature, I'm particularly angry, upset, by their distortion of language. It's Aurelian. It's saying the sky is down there and the sea is above us. To that last point, I wanted to ask you about a term that I know you've introduced in some of your conversations with Stanford administration regarding this conference, and that is DARVO. Could I ask you to define that for me and also tell us how you see that at work in the rhetoric of this conference? DARVO is a term that was originated by Jennifer Freed. DARVO is a formula that she found happening over and over and over again when institutions were not only criticized for the lack of response in terms of issues of sexual harassment or sexual violence, but anything, right? And the first thing institutions do, not just Stanford, is to deny it's not happening or we don't need to have the data, this and that. And then you attack the person who is launching the grievance. And then there's RVO, which is reversing victim and oppressor. So that Neil Ferguson is now the victim of all this. And the people in this conference are victims of this immense oppressive class that they have to keep on the other side of the moat. In other words, woke culture. And this is just insane. I would trade our position with their position any time because they have governors, they have the Supreme Court, they have law, they have state legislatures. So it doesn't bear any vague semblance to reality. Mm. So just to clarify, you're saying that it ignores the power dynamics that are at work here. It ignores the power structures that exist. It's this completely topsy-turvy, which is couched in topsy-turvy language. They are wealthy. They're well-positioned. They're up at the Hoover. They're fine. 
Neil's selling his books like hotcakes. I don't even know how seriously they believe their own rhetoric. Mm. But it certainly gets them press, which is really what they are after. They mm. want to be thought of in a positive way. So actually to that last point about press attention, I wanted to ask you about one specific line in the open letter, which reads, quote, the organizers have purposefully created a situation where Stanford cannot emerge unscathed, end quote. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this point and to follow up, how has Stanford responded so far? And how do you think they should respond moving forward if they've been put okay. in this kind of double bind? And this isn't the first time it's happened. And yes, this is ancient history, but it's interesting ancient history. Way back in the late 80s, when Stanford was in the midst of rethinking its curriculum, one person who had been an undergraduate and now is at the law school was Ken Rabois, who was a law student. And he sat outside a dormitory of a openly gay RF in broad daylight and started screaming, die, 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 you I hope you all die of AIDS. He said he just wanted to test Stanford's commitment to free speech. And the person who wrote about it approvingly was the keynote speaker of this conference, Peter Thiel. To his credit, then President Donald Kennedy rebutted saying, given the fact that we respect free speech, it's unlikely that we will prosecute but it's beneath Stanford, and it's meant to see distrust, and it's abhorrent, right? This administration has said nothing of the sort about this conference, and likely will not. They seem to be enthralled by the logic of, this is covered under academic freedom, and we disagree. We disagree strongly. And the word we use is Stanford's been trolled. It's exactly what Teal slash Robois did in those days, which is to create a provocation and then watch the institution twist in the wind. Now, that's not to say that Stanford could not come up with a response. Mm -hmm. And after all, Stanford has just issued this, as it should, apology for not admitting Jewish applicants. That was horrible. And anti-Semitism should be condemned in every form, as should bigotry. So if Stanford can apologize for that action, I've written the president three times, so there's been no response. I asked in one email, imagine Amy Wax wasn't anti-black, anti-Asian racist, maybe she was an anti-Semite. Hmm. What would you say then? Having just said anti-Semitism and bigotry is bad. I do not believe that administration is evil. I think that their spectrum of empathy is narrow. I think that when things are brought to their attention, sometimes they act and they act in the right way. The opportunity is still there for the administration, but so far the administration has said nothing. It probably won't. It'll probably just hope for the whole thing to blow away. But as we all know, if we know anything about psychology, these things just get absorbed. And students who care and faculty who care will just add this to a long line of disappointments. So something that I want to return to in the language of the open letter and make sure that I get really clear here is that the issue that you're raising is not that Amy Wax is being platformed in the first place, but rather it's the kind of platform that Stanford is giving her. And I want to ask how you would respond to criticism that it's anti-democratic or against the interests of free speech to raise these issues. Thank you so much for that question because it's obviously going to be the first line of defense. And Stanford invited Charles Murray, a well-known racist, to campus. I remember addressing a crowd outside of the Hoover when Charles Murray was speaking, and I said, 
It's his right to speak. It's our right to demonstrate. These things coexist, and that's what this is all about. But this conference has cheated. <laughs> it has cheated, and it has lied. It's not, it's, you can't say it's not exclusionary. You can't say there'll be a collision of ideas. You can't say it will foment anything except for a self-congratulatory bubble bath. They can do it. That's fine. But as I said at the beginning, language counts. It's not an academic conference. It's a private party. Let them have as much champagne. Let them get off any way they want. That's fine. But don't insult my intelligence by saying it's a vibrant exchange of ideas. That is what imperils societies. Mm -hmm. When you start accepting this Orwellian doublespeak, and it's one thing if we're talking about a general public, but we're one of the most important institutions of higher education. What does it say if we swallow it? And we then turn, go to the classroom. Okay, this is what really frightens me because education counts. And education counts on academic freedom, it counts on truth, it, it counts on fact testing. And when you remove all of that, you have not only a parody, but a dangerous parody of what academic life should be. And when the administration acquiesces to it, this is really a problem. This is when leadership is leading us in a really bad direction. Conference organizers declined to be interviewed for this podcast, writing in an email to The Daily that they were not interested in, quote, silly things that outsiders are saying about it. That's all for The Daily Brew. I'm Grace Carroll. Thank you for listening. And be sure to check out the rest of The Daily's coverage of the Academic Freedom Conference. We'll see you back here next time.